dedicated to the survival of American democracy in an increasingly dangerous world, this is Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney, acted as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy under President Ronald Reagan, founder of the Center for Security Policy in Washington, D.C., the go-to man for defense and foreign policy issues, joined by the greatest minds in the security policy business, the special forces in the war of ideas at Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney. Welcome to Secure Freedom Radio. This is Frank Gaffney, your host and guide for what I think of as an intelligence briefing on the war for the free world. We are privileged to plumb the intelligence of one of America's foremost experts on China and Asia more generally, well, on the world, truth be told, namely Gordon Chang. Each week here at Secure Freedom Radio, I know it's a high point of the program for me and I think for you as well. Gordon, of course, is an author of a number of very important books, including The Coming Collapse of China. He is an essayist of great renown at Newsweek and the Gatestone Institute these days. And he is a very prolific commentator in all kinds of platforms. And we're especially pleased that ours is among them. Gordon, as always, welcome to Secure Freedom Radio. Oh, well, so great to be on with you, Frank. So thank you. Well, the pleasure is mine, truly. Um, I wanted to talk with you, Gordon, about something that I caught last week that um, I've commented on in my Secure Freedom Minute for the day. The Chinese Communist Party was hosting, uh, well, has been hosting this week, a program of the United Nations called COP15 Biodiversity Summit. And uh, the dictator of China, Xi Jinping, addressed the group and used the occasion to promise to spend roughly a quarter of billion dollars to support biodiversity in developing nations. What caught my ear, Gordon, was a report from the BBC about um, what Chinese consumers, I guess you might say, consumers and Chinese companies are doing to essentially devastate one particular species in Africa, namely the population there of donkeys. Uh, They're doing it for their skins and I guess to some extent for their meat as well, Uh, but it's having a devastating effect both on the population of donkeys, but also on the humans who depend critically upon them for some cases their livelihood and in other cases their lives. Uh, What are we to make of this kind of rank cynicism on the one hand, uh, the biodiversity context, but more broadly, in terms of what China is up to in Africa that is really despoiling and plundering the place. This highlights, once again, uh, China's complete disregard for other countries. And, you know, we've seen so many examples of this. Um, you know, Frank, it, it just it, it's China's view that they can do whatever they want. And um, cynicism is very much an uh, element of Chinese statecraft has been for millennia, um, but the Communist Party certainly has perfected that. And there's one other aspect here, and that is these donkeys are being skinned uh, not just for the skins, but for the meat. And this also makes reminds us that China's in a food crisis, especially something evident last year. The food crisis is worse this year. And just because of structural reasons, We know that um, China will become less and less self-sufficient on food. So we're going to be seeing more of this if other countries permit it, um, as China desperately searches for protein. 
So, yes, um, this is highlights all the uh, number of trends that we see and will continue to see unless we stop China. This is part, really, of the larger program that is heavily focused on just about every country on the continent of this Belt and Road Initiative of uh, Xi Jinping's. What can you tell us about the importance, the strategic significance of what they're doing to secure markets, to secure strategic assets of other kinds, uh, infrastructure and power projection, most especially as a result. Well, the Belt and Road Program, which was announced in late 2013 as two separate initiatives, which were to connect um, China to Europe, has now been extended around the world and indeed has been extended into outer space. So this really is China's plan to dominate um, infrastructure in order to weaponize logistics, in order to make sure that trade flows are to Beijing's liking. Um, there are a number of reasons why Belt and Road will not succeed, and one of them is uh, China's uh, inability to fund all of its ambitions. Right now, we're seeing that countries are not paying China back because a lot of this infrastructure is not justified by the economics. Um, but Beijing doesn't really care because it has um, geopolitical goals in mind. Um, right now, um, China needs markets offshore because its own internal economy is stumbling. And so it's absolutely critical for the maintenance of Communist Party rule that they um, be able to sell things to other countries. Well, the markets are one thing. Um, I'm more concerned really about uh, the dominance uh, of uh, the people of Africa. And I think they're increasingly restive under what seems to be a highly exploitative arrangement, uh, not just on the financial side, but also in terms of construction there and uh, the use of Chinese exclusively to perform it. And also, again, the forfeiting of their assets if they don't manage to make payments, including ports, airfields, you know, rail networks and the like. Speaking of Africa, Gordon, you've weighed in on a conflict uh, on the northern coast of Africa between Algeria and Morocco, and you've made a connection to China in its ambitions uh, on the continent more generally, but uh, specifically in this fight. Tell us what that's about and why we ought to be paying attention to it. Well, Algeria has started a new round of tension against Morocco, its neighbor to the west. Morocco it was the first uh, country to actually diplomatically recognize the United States. It is a U.S. friend. It uh, signed on to the Abraham Accords. Um, it is very much uh, an important ally of ours in um, the uh, west, in the north coast of Africa. Right now, Algeria has Broke off and has broke off diplomatic relations. It's closed off its airspace, airspace to Moroccan planes. It has announced that on the 30th of this month, it will shut down a pipeline to Morocco that supplies uh, both Spain and Portugal. It's ramping up tensions. Um, there are many concerns that um, Algeria will actually invade uh, the southern portion of Morocco. There's a dispute over what's called the Western Sahara. Um, which blocks Algeria's access to the Atlantic Ocean. The United States, uh, at, in December of last year, um, recognized that the Western Sahara is part of Morocco, which I think is the correct decision from a number of different perspectives. And the reason why we should care about this is because Algeria is becoming a Chinese proxy. The one reason why Beijing wants to spack Algiers 
is that uh, the Moroccan king, Mohammed VI, um, is the holdout. Um, he is preventing China from dominating the entire continent of Africa. And so um, we should be backing Morocco. We should be much more uh, resolute than the Biden administration has been. You know, fortunately, the Biden administration did not reverse uh, the Trump's decision to um, recognize Western Sahara. But we don't see very much in the way of Biden administration support for the king. And I believe that we need to do this because we do not need another war in this world. Well, we don't. And the implications of it uh, could extend beyond uh, those two countries, uh, I think, for reasons that have to do with uh, you know, proximity of Morocco to Europe, among other things. Let me just um, turn now to another topic that I know you've been focusing intensively on, Gordon, as must we all, and that is Taiwan. Um, our colleague Grant Newsom has recently uh, issued really a very strong warning to the Chinese that there will be devastating consequences for them if they actually decide to act you know, with military force against Taiwan, something they seem increasingly inclined to do and certainly prepared to do. Um, talk about, about a point that you've made that seems to have the same basic impetus, namely deterring China by making clear that the United States is committed to its defense and thereby, you know, giving substance to Grant's warning that there would be a very high cost to the Chinese if they do go down that road. Well, for decades, the U.S. has maintained a policy that's called strategic ambiguity, which means that we tell neither Beijing nor Taipei what we would do in the case of an imminent conflict. And the idea was that, of course, we want to deter China, but we also don't want Taipei to cause problems, quote unquote. So um, this is a policy that actually worked in a benign period, but we're no longer in a benign period, and we need to move to a policy that, of strategic clarity. In other words, publicly telling Beijing that we will defend Taiwan. And I believe that we need to back up that public commitment um, with an offer to Taipei to um, uh, enter into a mutual defense treaty with Taiwan. Uh, right now, um, Taiwan is um, alarmed. You know, China has, has done a number of provocative and uh, has, has said things that are belligerent. But uh, officials in Taiwan, the leaders in Taiwan, have sort of sloughed them off for a very long time. That's not true. Uh, in the last two weeks. In the last two weeks, we have heard the defense minister, the foreign minister, and the president herself speak in alarming tones. And that means that Taipei itself is worried for the first time in a long period. And that means that we need to uh, start to step up. Taiwan is absolutely essential for our defense. Since the end of the 19th century, we have drawn our Western defense perimeter off the coast of East Asia. Taiwan is in the, in the center of that line. It protects our cornerstone ally, Japan. But more important, Frank, um, we cannot allow China to absorb any democracy, especially one as important as Taiwan. Yeah. And Gordon, you understand, having lived there, what the effect was both on the free world and on the Chinese that um, they were able to snuff Hong Kong earlier uh, a year or so ago, I guess now. And it's uh, the implications of allowing them to continue to nibble or, or more broadly uh, 
bite in a very big way into what is left would be devastating, I think, um, and uh, not least to our own country and its leadership in uh, the cause of freedom worldwide. Let me turn finally, if I can, Gordon, to a country that we do have a mutual defense treaty with, namely South Korea. There is a move afoot, and I know you have a, an essay coming out soon about it, concerning uh an effort here in the United States Congress that seems to be a product of, um, well, an influence operation, I think it's fair to say. Uh, whether it's uh, principally of Chinese uh, character or perhaps North Korea, which has its own agents of influence in this country, um, unbeknownst to most of us. But talk a little bit about this uh, so-called Peace on the Korean Peninsula Act that has been introduced in the House of Representatives. Um, it's called H.R. 3446 um, in the House numbering system. Um, what's it about and what's wrong with it? H.R. 3446 has a number of provisions. Uh, one of them is to um, encourage the State Department to start negotiations with North Korea and South Korea about turning the Korean War armistice of 1953 into a permanent peace treaty. The Korean War still continues today because there was no possibility of a treaty in the 1950s, and so the armistice merely just stopped the fighting. Um, everyone, of course, wants peace on the Korean Peninsula. Nobody wants the technical state of war um, to continue, but you can't have a peace treaty unless there are the foundations for peace. And right now, um, North Korea continues to threat um, South Korea and uh, indeed Japan and the United States. Um, so this move for a peace treaty is premature. Um, and many people believe, as I do, that you can't really have a peace treaty as long as the Kim regime is in existence, because the Kim regime is dedicated um, and is committed to absorbing South Korea by force if necessary. And so um, I believe that this move is really going to lead to more problems. What will happen will be, if there is a peace treaty now, um, the leftists who control the government in Seoul um, are going to argue that there's no need for U.S. troops on the peninsula. There's no need for the alliance with the United States. Once those are broken, uh, North Korea will be free to attack South Korea again, as it did in 1950. So um, this could lead to um, what the sponsors don't want. Um, but clearly right now, we're in a situation where if this bill were to go through, if there were to be a peace treaty, it could be the worst outcomes on the peninsula. This is made all the more fraught, of course, because as you've indicated, Gordon, uh, the Moon Jae-in regime in South Korea is so keen to unify with the North on even the North's terms, um, something that I can't imagine the people of South Korea want done. But that's afoot here as well. And anything that might conduce to uh, a new, perhaps forcible, but perhaps even uh, a voluntary <laughs> submission of the South Korean 
government to the north is, I think, highly detrimental to our national interests. And I note that Brad Sherman, congressman from California, is uh, the lead sponsor, I believe, on this legislation in the House. I hope that he'll come to his senses about this because I understand that he's got a fair number of uh, Korean Americans in his constituency, and I can't imagine they would think this is a good idea, nor I would hope would he if he gave it some uh, careful thought uh, informed by your analysis in particular. Yeah, right now, um, I, I think that you're, you know, you were right when you said that there was an influence operation. Um, I think it's probably from North Korea, um, from the leftists in South Korea. And I don't think that Representative Sherman understands the significance of his bill. Um, you know, this is going to be important for us because, um, as you point out, Moon Jae-in, the president of South Korea, is a leftist. He's very pro-North Korea, very pro-China, very anti-U.S. Fortunately, his term comes to an end. There's going to be elections in March of next year. He can't run again because he's termed out. Um, and it's important for us to make sure that that the next president of South Korea defends South Korea. Um, most people in South Korea support the United States. Uh, support of the U.S. is actually growing among uh, South Korea's population, but um, the government is controlled by leftists. Um, the South Korean electorate is, is actually segmented in its views on the U.S., and it's the people in their 60s um, who now control the government, and that segment of the population is pretty anti-U.S., which means we've got problems, at least until the next election. Well, Gordon, I, again, I hope your counsel is heard uh, in the circles of uh, influence that operate in Washington these days, uh, particularly with Brad Sherman. And I think that these admonitions are hugely important, and I appreciate you sharing them with us today. And for all your other good insights, as always, come back to us again next week, if you would, my friend. In the meantime, stay well, and thank you for all you do at the Gainstone Institute and elsewhere. Follow Gordon Chang, as I do, at Gordon G. Chang. That's really a tremendously important resource for all of us. We'll talk with you again next week. Next up, we'll speak with Todd Bensman about the latest south of our border and what's coming here right after this. <laughs> 